coming up on Philosophy Talk. Your Honor, my time in the sterling correctional facilities of Greenhaven and Sing Sing has not been in vain. I've been cured. Born again. Well, don't you know? That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. What are prisons for? Keeping criminals off the street? Let me ensure this court that I am through walking on the wild side. Should prisons educate and rehabilitate or punish? Five years, and look at me, completely rehabilitated, reinvigorated, reassimilated, and finally going to be relocated. Well, don't you know? That's the sound of the men working on the chain. A guest, Kara Dansky, from the Stanford Law School. The prison system, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the prison system. Can America imprisons more of our citizens for more crimes and for longer periods than any other nation in the world? At the beginning of 2008, Nearly two and a half million people were in prison in the U.S. That's one in every 100 adults. China, with a population four times as big as ours, had a prison population of a million less, of about a one and a half million during that same period. Does this mass incarceration really serve the interest of justice, or is it an inefficient, dysfunctional way of addressing social ills that would be better handled in other ways? Here's a thought, Ken. The U.S. can be a very violent place. Maybe our prisons are overflowing with people because our streets are overflowing with violent crime. But violent crime is only part of the story, John. Here's another fact. In the 27 nations of the European Union whose combined population exceeds ours by nearly 200 million, the total prison population for all crimes combined is about 600,000. In the U.S., we've got almost that number of people, 500,000 to be precise, in prison for drug-related crimes alone, and many of these crimes involve no violence whatsoever. That's a lot of people. And, you know, it costs a lot of money. The state spent almost $50 billion on incarceration in 2007. That's up from $10 billion in 1987, 10 to 50. Adjusting for inflation, that's an increase of 127%. It's worse than health care. Right, which only went up like 47% in that same period. Now, look, it's not just how many people we imprison, but it's who we imprison that raises tricky issues for me. I mean, the prison system is one of the great epicenters of racial inequality of, in America. African Americans, for example, make up roughly 12% of our total population, but they make up over 40% of the prison population. The way things are going... One out of every three African-Americans will end up in prison at some point in his life. That is a lot of people. Well, Ken, let's see if we can make some philosophy out of those numbers. We like to think that a just punishment is a punishment that fits the crime. But what does that mean? What does it take for a punishment to fit a crime? Well, doesn't that depend on what punishment is for? I mean, you could think that the point of punishment is to deter future crime and that a punishment fits a crime if it's just harsh enough to change the cost-benefit calculations of potential criminals. Or you could think that punishment is about retribution, an eye for an eye. A punishment would fit a crime if the pain or harm imposed on the criminal was proportionate to the pain or harm 
that the criminal imposed on his victim. Maybe, though, the point of punishment is to rehabilitate the criminal. In that case, the punishment might fit the crime only if it helped to make the criminal a better person. Uh, that's weird, Ken. That's not really a theory of punishment. You rehabilitate people by treating them or educating them. At a minimum, punishment requires condemnation. And what about the victim? Isn't he at least owed some restitution? Well, you've just given us two more theories of punishment. The restorative theory of punishment requires the criminal to make restitution for his crimes. And the denunciation theory of punishment says that just punishment should express society's collective condemnation of the criminal and his acts. You know, by any measure, deterrence, retribution, restitution, rehabilitation, or social denunciation... I think our prison system is riddled with moral imperfection. There's got to be a better way. You know, and to help us sort through these thorny issues, we'll be joined shortly by Kara Dansky, executive director of Stanford's Criminal Justice Center. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Devin Strolovich, talks to two attorneys. They've spent most of the last decade advocating for an inmate whose continued imprisonment doesn't seem to fit any theory of punishment. He files this report. Deborah Piegler is an inmate at the Central California Women's Facility at Chowchilla, where she used to lead the church choir. She is a 49-year-old woman, mother of two, grandmother of three, uh, who has been incarcerated for the last 27 years for her involvement in the death of her batter. Nadia Costa and Joshua Safran are Piegler's pro bono attorneys. Deborah never got a trial, and she never got to tell her story about how she had been taken at the age of 15 by a drug dealer. She took a plea. Uh, she took a plea to first-degree murder and took a sentence of 25 years to life. Of course, this was back in the 80s, South Central Los Angeles, um, where there was not a lot of faith in the ability of the police to maintain law. All she could think of was, I just want to make this pain stop. Costa and Safran got involved with Piegler's case in January 2003 through the California Habeas Project. The Habeas Project is a statewide coalition of agencies working together uh, to ensure access to a new law that allows women who were battered and never had an opportunity to present expert evidence of the effects of that battering to go back to court and try and get a new trial. Basically, everyone who's reviewed her case has agreed that she should be released. At worst, Debbie's crime was voluntary manslaughter, which would have put her in for a maximum of six years. But Debbie's still in prison, and Debbie's still waiting to have her evidentiary hearing. By all accounts, Debbie Piegler has been an exemplary inmate. The dysfunctions in the prison system have been especially frustrating for her and her attorneys. Everything is a battle. And every, everything that in the outside world should move relatively smoothly is going to be a roadblock when you're in prison. But no one could have anticipated the degree of failure Piegler experienced in the prison's medical system. We were finally, after years of uh, pursuing justice through the legal system, were um, getting very close. And then we learned that she's been diagnosed with an advanced case of lung cancer that has apparently spread to her heart and her spine and, and her liver. And she has um, only months to live. Costa says Piegler's medical care was below substandard. She had complained for months of significant symptoms, not being able to breathe, huge protrusions on her neck, never received care, only received 
the ability to go out and be seen by a doctor when they received a threatening letter from our law firm stating that they have to get her out. And at that time, she was given that diagnosis, left without a treating doctor, left without a treatment plan, left without any sort of prognosis, which she then remained for weeks in this sort of limbo without any concern. A 2005 finding by a federal judge found that a California inmate dies needlessly every six to seven days. Attorney Joshua Safran. Fundamental and basic provision of women's health, including basic preventative medicine, pap smears, mammograms, that kind of thing, have simply not been provided. To get the most basic of care, the basic level of uh, humanity to occur, it's a, it's a fight every day. Debbie Piegler's own Fight for Humanity produced a tentative victory in July 2009 at her sixth parole board hearing. The panel reviewed all information received from the public and all relevant information that is before us today, concluding that the prisoner is suitable for parole and would not pose an unreasonable risk of danger to society or a threat to public safety if released from prison. Watching Debbie finally have an acknowledgement of what she has done in prison, what she has learned, the importance of her not staying in prison any longer, and the importance of being with her family at this time. That moment in and of itself was tremendously valuable to her. And at this point, it's a race against time to try to get her out so that she can spend her last moments with her family, see the stars at night one time, and hear the sound of the ocean at least one time before she dies. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Devin Strolovich. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.